My name is Mor Geva. I'm a PhD student at Tel Aviv University and a research intern at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. My PhD is about natural language processing. Specifically, I'm focused on question answering. So we've covered that a little bit on the show, but just in case listeners didn't catch those episodes, could you give a quick survey of what the question and answering problem is and how people are approaching it? The problem is for basically testing or evaluating a natural language understanding of models. The task is you're giving some question and usually there is a context coming with it. The goal is to provide an answer based on the context. But there are some variations in some cases. For example, the question might be uh, about common sense and there might be uh, distractors. Uh, so there are many variations, but basically the task is to evaluate the understanding of the model of language. Are there typical data sets people have to study the problem? For question answering, or even uh, broader than that, for natural language understanding, it's a bit funny, but there are countless number of datasets right now. I mean, in recent years, there were more and more datasets coming out. So it's not like natural language inference, for example, where there's, I don't know, like a f very few datasets. There are just tons of datasets. Like every week, there's a new dataset about question answering. Maybe it'd be good to talk a little bit about the origin of some of those. Uh, many people, myself included, take for granted that we can just visit a website, download a really large file, and then go do some work on it. When they prepare data sets like that, whether it's Squad or maybe some of the ones you took a more specific look at, obviously we want to get labels, and it seems that uh, the ground truth source we have is human annotators. Oh, yeah. What does that process end up being like? Usually when you want to create a new data set, eventually you need, you need to have questions. You need to have, I don't know, some context. For example, in Squad, you have those paragraphs from Wikipedia. And then uh, you want to have the questions and the answers. And for this part, you want to use annotators, like you said. And the common practice is to do crowdsourcing. Frameworks like Amazon Mechanical Turk, and there are probably other uh, frameworks. This is like the famous one. The common practice is to go for some crowdsourcing framework and to recruit crowd workers. And you basically guide them to write the type of questions you are interested in. So I can share my story if you don't have one of your own, but have you ever employed some of these uh, mechanical Turkers and been able to observe the quality of their work? Yeah, the, the recruitment is, is like a very important part. You want to have a good quality questions in case you are dealing with question answering. So let, let's say this is the case. You want to have uh, good questions. First of all, you have the first challenge of encouraging people to perform your task. Then the challenge is to pick those workers who are actually do, doing a good job. It's not that easy. <laughs> you end up with a small group of workers who, you know, uh, are able to produce these uh, good questions. But this is a small group. And you just say, you know, you say, thank you. This is, this is the group of workers I'm going to work with. You just let them create more and more examples until you're satisfied. My expectation going in, I had never looked at details about who annotates these things and how much work they put in until I encountered your research, but I always assumed it was probably some long-tailed distribution, just because things always are, right? Like open source contributions are very long-tailed. Can you tell me about what you found in terms of the level of contribution various members make? Yeah, so basically in our work, we looked at uh, three datasets. 
Uh, one of them is common sense QA. This is question answering, uh, open book QA. This is another question answering. And the third one is multi-NLI. This is natural language inference. We pick those datasets simply because we have this annotation information. Usually researchers do not publish this kind of data. Usually you just have the examples. I mean, this is the, the interesting part. It's all anonymized, of course. Uh, you don't really have, you know, the names of the people who wrote the examples, just have some IDs. But when you look at this information, this is where things become interesting because you can see that the annotator distribution or the contribution, like you called it, it's super skewed. The common practice is to just recruit this small group of workers, but it's not just that you have a small number of people who write the examples. It's also like you have these, I don't know, five to 10 people who write thousands of examples. And this is where concern starts to come in. People have their writing style and language patterns. Basically, once you have a few people just uh, writing thousands of examples, you start to see patterns. If you take, I don't know, one or two people and just ask them to write thousands of sentences, their creativity is limited by the end of the day and they start to repeat themselves or have their, you know, writing style. The models we use today, I don't know, maybe the listeners know about BERT. I sure hope so, because we've been covering it quite a bit. Oh, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So these big models, they can capture these language patterns. This results in models that eventually learn the annotators. They learn these patterns of the annotator instead of the task itself. And this is basically the problem, right? Because we want, we think we train the models to perform the task. For example, question answering. But eventually what the models are doing, they're learning the annotators. This is like the, the extreme case we are all afraid of. I could definitely understand where with very few annotators, it would learn, as you said, the writing styles, maybe even sort of a cultural bias or a world knowledge bias from people. Exactly. So yeah. definitely it's a bias, but at the same time, you know, how bad is it? What kind of, uh, how, how much does it hurt the ability for these models to generalize? Well, so in a paper we published, instead of evaluating on the original data set, we just split it. We, we took all the data and split it by the annotators. Namely, we just picked a group of annotators and then used the examples they generated as evaluation, for evaluation, and all the other examples used uh, for training. So basically what we, testing, we are testing here is whether the model is able to generalize to this group of annotators, unseen annotators. We got all sort of results for the different data set, but eventually we were able to see that, uh, I don't know, for example, for OpenBook QA, there was a big problem there. We took five different groups of annotators and tested the generalization of the model to these groups. And uh, the performance of the model was lower by about, I don't know, 20 to 23 points, accuracy points on these. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a big decrease. Yeah, there are that kind of biases in the data that really affects the model performance. I know you may not have looked at this, but do you think that the advancement which BERT represents is what finally allowed kind of a breakthrough to exploit this information content? Or could this flaw have existed in more historical techniques and we just didn't observe it? I think BERT and uh, similar language models have the capacity 
to just capture such patterns. They just have this capacity to learn all those patterns created by annotators. It might be that previous models, less expressive models, could not capture the same information. But I guess eventually it doesn't matter what model you use. These models, eventually they want to succeed. They, I mean, if you optimize it like I suppose you do, they want to succeed on the task. This is what we train them to do. And if they have some artificial clues to exploit, they will probably use them. I feel the same way. I often tell people that I think machine learning is lazy. <laughs> if it can find a way to an easy solution, it will yeah, take it. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. This, this is exactly what we tested. By the way, there are many uh, papers you know, about biases uh, and in crowdsource practices specifically. But I think the papers we, we published is the first one who actually tested uh, these ideas with these new models and you know, doing these uh, annotator-based splits. This is, by the way, a very useful tool for anyone who is working with the crowdsourcing on creating these new data sets. It's very simple to use, like just to test that. Oh, tell me more about that in case we have a listener who's on that journey. Well, I hope so. <laughs> uh, no, this <laughs> is a very, I mean, like I said, there are a lot of data sets coming out. So yeah, I would really uh, wish that people will be more aware of these problems. Yeah, so this is a, is a very uh, recommended practice. While you're collecting data, also after you, you finish with the collection, just to re-split the data based on group of annotators and just test whether the model, the baselines you are testing are able to generalize across annotators. This is just a simple cue that tells you whether there are biases in the data. Yeah, it's a neat approach. If I understand it correctly, it's almost a little bit backwards from what you what you'd be taught in your first machine learning class. You know, they uh, want everyone to learn about test and train. Um, so you know, you do your splits and you do your maybe uh, cross validation. But it seems like to arrive at the wisdom you found here, you kind of did a different approach. You forced the test and train group so you could see if the phenomenon occurred. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. If you actually manages to collect uh, very diverse data, your baseline should not distinguish between the annotators. If you have, for example, just a lot of annotators and every annotator just write uh, one example, you would not expect the model to capture uh, language patterns of the annotators. So we just want to make sure that your data is very diverse, is diverse enough. Thanks to this week's sponsor, GiveWell. Those of you at a computer, head over right now to givewell.org slash dataskeptic. There you'll find a well-designed modern website that helps you explore charities that you can give to. I don't have time to do deep research on an organization, and I doubt if you do either. That's why GiveWell can be a great resource for helping direct your donations. GiveWell is a research-driven organization, which is why you know I respect it. GiveWell reviews independent evidence for charity programs, they model out impact, and they figure out how charities will use additional funds. All of this is done in the public so you can see it. Their site's a great tool for you to figure out how your values and donations can best align and have the maximal efficacy. When I give, I know I want to maximize my impact. That's why one of my first stops is givewell.org slash dataskeptic.
And you had mentioned the three different data sets that are studied in the paper were specifically studied because they share the annotator ID, which is not necessarily common. If I had created a data set like this, I don't know that I would have put in the annotator ID, not because I was hiding it, but because I didn't think that that would be a good idea that I clearly see it is now. Are there any standards or best practices or recommendations you would have for someone who can make smarter choices as they start a project? First of all, usually when you start uh, using crowdsourcing, you want to be aware of these problems because, I mean, not just to go ahead and, uh, you know, select these uh, good annotators. You want to check that the annotator distribution, maybe you want to uh, decide in advance on the number of annotators you're aiming for. Mm. You want to make sure that each annotator, I don't know, maybe to limit the number of examples he creates. Yeah, I think that people are simply not really aware of these problems. I mean, this is just, if, if you go and just, you know, ask someone who did such a project before, uh, they will probably tell you, yeah, go ahead and just find those good workers and just use them. <laughs> you want to be smarter than that. I mean, you want to you want to think ahead of how many workers you want eventually and how many examples are created by each worker. I don't know, probably at the beginning, you don't really expect it to know the number. So a good idea is maybe to just try, I don't know, like to, to do these annotator splits and see if, I don't know, if 10 people is enough or maybe you need more than that. It's like trial and error. And I think that in every such experiment with crowdsourcing, you always have those iterations at the beginning uh, where you just try your experiments and you let them produce examples. While you're doing that, maybe it's a good idea to also test for these biases. Are you familiar with the reproducibility crisis? Uh, yes, but... I mean, maybe not all the details. Sure. I, I just, at a high level, it's the, um, and for listeners, it's the, uh, an issue that has been raised by some statisticians examining psychology papers in particular and finding that many results, in particular some well-known mm. results, don't seem to reproduce well um, in other labs. Do you think this could be a form of a machine learning reproducibility crisis? Or I guess not reproducibility, but a, a bias crisis somewhere in here. Yeah, I think, I don't know if there's such a crisis. I mean, I'm not sure if someone put that name on it, the bias crisis, but I think about fairness and, yeah, and biases. I mean, this is, there are a lot of concerns in this area. Uh, you want eventually to have bottles that are not biased. And there are many people who are investigating this uh, and how to create such models and to eliminate any biases. This is just like one type of bias, right? This is like bias in the way people write language. I'm not sure if this is related with the reproducibility crisis, but I guess this is like a related crisis. Yeah, I don't think, in my opinion, it's not nearly as uh, significant. I don't know if the word crisis is even appropriate, but I was interested to gauge your thoughts on, you know, would a paper even be retracted as a result of some, you know, or, or a finding, that, a beloved finding be reversed on or something like that? Oh, yeah. Well, I think if a data set comes out and there's some really inherent biases there, it means it's just less useful, right? It's not it's it's yeah. not giving you what you you want it to be. So yeah, I think I think this is a real problem. I mean, eventually, I mean, yeah, these datasets 
you know, they drive progress and they make researchers come up with uh, new ideas and new models. But eventually, if these models are learning the wrong task or just learning uh, patterns of specific uh, workers, it just misses the point, <laughs> I think. Yeah, absolutely. There's certainly a lot of good discussion to be had, and I, I want to get more into this about how we improve the sampling process. But do you think there's a way to fight this from a machine learning perspective, some form of regularization that could, I don't know, penalize models that seem to rely on this? Oh, well, I mean, that's a great question. There's a whole line of work about debiasing biases. <laughs> but I think, I don't know, at least for this, I mean, in our work about the annotator bias, well, the whole bias is created, I mean, it's controllable by the way, okay, it's not controllable. It's it's a result of our method, right? Our method is to use crowdsourcing and to recruit a small group of workers and to let them just generate a lot of a lot of data. Uh, the problem is with our method, so it feels a bit like you know going. It's not not solving the problem itself. It's like we can simply avoid the, these biases by improving our method. So I guess that. Specifically for this case, for the annotator bias, I think the solution is not really debiasing. It's simply just improving our method or just mm -hmm. coming up, you know, with a different method. I don't know. Maybe we should not use crowdsourcing. Maybe there are more mm -hmm. sophisticated ways. I don't know. There are many interesting papers to create questions, to create questions from, like create new questions from existing questions or stuff like that to perform data collection, but in different ways, like without showing the annotators, the context, or I don't know, there are many ideas. Probably there are ways to address these kind of biases from the model perspective and not from the data collection. But I think that in this specific case, the solution should come from the data pipeline. Definitely, yeah. To say, hey, uh, nine, you know, something like 99% of our data was generated by 1% of the users doesn't sound good to anybody's ears. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. This is like a basic uh, data, data science, right? <laughs> yeah. I've heard some work going into like uh, consensus approaches. So ask three annotators the same thing. And yeah. I guess there's lots of ways there. Like either you take an average or you yeah. take a mode or whatever. But what do you think about techniques like that? So these are great techniques. The thing is that these techniques are very suitable for cases where you have labels, right? If you, if you are like dealing with classification problem, okay? And then you have a few possible labels, a few classes. Yeah, it makes sense to, I don't know, to just let more than one worker, like to let, I don't know, five workers to annotate the same example. And then you just take the consensus. This is totally makes sense. And I guess it has been shown that this is, I don't know, solve may, many of biases that were pointed out before. But the thing is, in our work, we talked about text generation. How do you get consensus for that? You basically let the workers uh, write text. You can't expect that a few different people will write the same sentence, for example. I mean, if, if you just want them to write some question. Probably if you ask five different people to write five different questions or not different questions, you just ask five different people to write question about, uh, I don't know, a passage or something, they will probably not write the same text. But yeah, it's very tricky because there are multiple correct answers. 
yeah, there are probably, I don't know, not endless uh, number of uh, correct answers, but yeah. In terms of the bias itself, I know you worked with uh, the BERT vectors as features, and they're far from interpretable, even though they're powerful. But were you able to get a sense of what exactly the bias was capturing? Like, was it that one annotator was good at sports questions, and so the system knew to always trust his answers for sports? Or uh, do you have a sense of how it worked? This is also very, very interesting. Um, actually, we tried. Okay, so... One of the experiments we, we, we took was to, like I said, we just picked a group of five annotators and saw if the model generalizes to these annotators. At the beginning, we, we wanted to cluster all the workers based on their writing style. And then to see, you know, if the model generalizes across writing styles and stuff like that. But this was too hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not obvious what exactly happened there. There, the difficulty is in, in a few places. First of all, it's not obvious. I mean, let's say you cluster all the workers. It's not obvious how to cluster them, what features to use, and uh, if you want to craft feature by yourself or to use uh, the encoded embed the embeddings. We cannot spot like specific features the model captured. We also tried manually to go over the examples of the top annotators and just, you know, by ourselves to see if I give you, if I give you 100 examples from the top five annotators, will you able to say, I don't know, which examples were produced by the same um, worker? We were able to identify one worker from Common Sense QA, but other than that, no, it's, it's very difficult. It's not obvious what exactly the model captures. Ah, that's very interesting. Yeah, if, if the human uh, observer can't do it, then it's very curious what the model's up to. Yeah, so we were not able to say by ourselves by looking at the examples from the annotators, except one. But uh, mm -hmm. it requires some, I don't know, deep analysis to understand exactly what the model captured from the text. It, it's, not, it's not obvious. One need to, I don't know, come up with methods for doing that. Well, I'd like to wind up with a sort of more abstract and theoretical question. I'm reminded of the expression, if you build a staircase to the moon, you can report great progress along the way. <laughs> I'm curious to know if you think that there'll be a, a, a BERT 2, or there already has been in some ways, but this is just a stumbling block on the way to a very powerful natural language engine, or are we doing something fundamentally wrong in the way that Naive Bayes classifier was never going to give us AGI on its own. So you're asking, this is like a general question about BERT and language models. And yeah, are we on the right track or are we going to hit some ceiling with these tools? Well, I think these large uh, models really sort of changed the game. Yeah. Until recently, you had a lot of small models or not, not necessarily small, but I mean, you had a lot of different models where each model just solves a specific task. Now you have these very large models who, you know, with just a few epochs, training epochs, are able to solve a lot of tasks in very good quality. First of all, yeah, we are definitely on the right track uh, <laughs> uh, because uh, <laughs> we are just, you know, we are able to achieve much better performance on tasks we were not able to solve until recently. And this poses new challenges. I mean, if you look now at new data sets uh, and new challenges, this is very difficult tasks now coming out. So it will be very interesting to see. 
I mean, I, my guess is that, uh, you know, in the next round, you know, there are many papers that will spot weaknesses of these large models. They do have weaknesses. I mean, if you look at all sort of reasoning types, like numerical reasoning and common sense, these models, they know a lot, a lot of stuff, but they also have many weaknesses. So I guess this is the way we drive progress. So I think we are on the right track uh, and it will be very interesting to see where are we going next. What's next for you in terms of your research and uh, anything you might have upcoming? Well, so I have two uh, main projects right now going on. Uh, one of them is uh, related to my previous answer about weaknesses of these large models. So it's very close to heart. It's about numerical reasoning skills of these large models. Apparently, these models lack of these skills. So we are trying to come, in, come up with ways to inject those skills into these large models. Yeah, I'm also working on building a new question-answering data set uh, with uh, many types of reasoning. But this is like more uh, preliminary work. Well, I imagine when you release that, it'll have an annotator ID and maybe some other useful metadata. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. We're, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's very difficult to, you know, to make sure to actually, you know, implement yeah. all the recommendations. But <laughs> well, I hope that's a trend we continue to see. Is there anywhere people can follow you online? Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, I have a website. It's uh, MEGA002 Mega on GitHub. Yeah, and I'm also uh, in Twitter. Outstanding. I'll have links to both in the show notes. <laughs> well, thanks again for coming on and sharing all your research and uh, some of your thoughts on things. Thank you for hosting me. It was a great pleasure. <laughs>